Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. First off, uh, it's been just a few weeks since we launched our Patreon campaign to support this podcast, and a uh, special thanks to everyone who's supported it so far. Uh, please, uh, if you haven't yet, check it out at patreon.com slash techdirt, uh, especially if you want to get in on the special backers-only podcast that we'll be doing next month. But let's move quickly on to today's actual podcast, uh, which I'm actually really excited about. There's been a lot of talk recently about the idea of sending people to Mars, in large part because Elon Musk uh, made an announcement a few months back with a plan to actually, as he said, colonize Mars. Uh, this was back at the International Astronautical Congress. Uh, he detailed his, I guess, rough estimates for a plan to send not just a few people to Mars, but a whole colony with ongoing efforts to send lots more by what he called his interplanetary transport system, which is designed to continually send large groups of people from Earth to Mars, and somewhat importantly, to be able to have the ships return back to Earth uh, to get more people and stuff. He envisions a plan to get a million people to Mars in a process that he expects would take uh, something like 10,000 flights and somewhere between 40 and 100 years to uh, establish. Uh, and that's only once the process is actually started, which certainly isn't going to happen anytime soon, if at all. Um, it's a fascinating, if somewhat science fiction uh, version of, of what might happen. Uh, but part of the idea for Musk to raise it was to get people talking about it. And we've wanted to talk about it here on the podcast. Um, but honestly, my knowledge of space and Mars is fairly limited. <laughs> uh, it's mostly uh, my knowledge levels at the fairly simplified uh, level of the books that I read to my preschool children. <laughs> so I figured that it might be a good idea to bring in some actual experts. And uh, here's where Twitter is actually kind of amazing. I asked a simple question on Twitter on who might be good to talk about uh, trips to Mars on the podcast, and Twitter quickly brought uh, three truly awesome experts to my attention, and uh, all three of them were able to make this podcast. In fact, we had to kick out our usual co-hosts in order to fit all three of them in here. Um, so uh, on the podcast today, uh, we've got our three Mars slash space experts, and they're all pretty incredible. So I'm going to introduce them one by one with a little introductory question in part so that everyone can identify who is who. And uh, first up, I'm going to start with uh, Amy Shira Teitel, um, who does the truly amazing vintage space uh, videos on YouTube and has written a wonderful book called Breaking the Chains of Gravity about the history of spaceflight from before NASA. So Amy, uh, since you focus so much on sort of historical stories of flight, have there been any serious attempts to send humans to Mars in the past? Um, well, first of all, hello, and thank you for having me. Sure, <laughs> um, no, thanks and for coming. And second of all, 
No, um, <laughs> no, um, the, the most serious uh, attempt, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes that you can't see, um, would probably be Werner von Braun's 1940s and then kind of rehashed in the early 1950s plan to send humans to Mars because that's one of the few off the top of my head that I know of that actually looked at the fuel requirements and the launch times and all that junk to actually get people to Mars. There were some plans to use a Saturn V and, and convert the Apollo hardware into something that could go to Mars but not land on Mars. But that was really a concept study to try to save the program when it was canceled. So, yeah. And then there was, <laughs> and then I guess there was Bush the firsts um, humans on Mars in 10 years or something in, uh, in, I think it was 89. It was like trying to have his own Kennedy moment to mark right. uh, his presidency and that, you know, Mars is just so far away that I don't, I don't think it, it amounted to a thing. Clearly, because we haven't been to Mars yet. I was going to say, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think the evidence is in yeah. that, that nothing happened with that. Great, great. Um, second, uh, we've got Dr. Fred Califf um, from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, uh, who is a Mars geologist and describes himself as the keeper of the maps uh, for Mars rovers. So uh, welcome, Fred. And um, since you're the keeper of the maps. I was going to ask you if you can tell us something about Mars uh, that you think would surprise most people listening to this podcast. Uh, hi, everyone. Wow, something about Mars that would surprise <laughs> everyone uh, beyond the fact that it's red and cold <laughs> right now. I think some of the surprising things that might surprise your listeners or people in general is that a lot of things on Mars have been exposed to water. Um, it's, uh -huh. it's not just, uh, we used to think of Mars as, um, wet in the distance past and for a little bit and in certain small areas, um, and the rest of it's very dry and volcanic and there's no, um, you know, water was a pretty limited resource, but the more and more that we study Mars, the more and more it appears like water was pretty much everywhere and that a lot of the features we see, sedimentary rocks that we see laid down, um, were laid down by water. So that's, a, um, I think, a pretty fascinating thing. Yeah. That, we're, that as, as, as the study of Mars has evolved, more and more we're seeing evidence of water at, um, all over the planet. And then, um, you know, in, in earlier, more earlier in the time, you know, in the time frame of Mars, in fact, there's even talks of more recent examples of water running on the surface, though. Still kind of a lot of debate, but uh, I always find that pretty interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, and finally, our, the third person, uh, third guest on the podcast, we've got another Mars scientist in Tanya Harrison, uh, who is currently a research scientist with the New Space Initiative at Arizona State University and who has worked on a bunch of Mars missions, um, including the Mars rovers, Curiosity, and more. And uh, one of the many things that you've done is help put together Mars weather reports. And I know Fred was just discussing that it's cold, but can you tell us a little bit about what what kind of a typical weather report looks like for Mars? So it really depends on the season, actually, because the weather changes a lot depending on where you are on the planet and what time of year it is. Um, so there are some places that are really prone to dust storms. There are other places where you tend to see a lot of water ice clouds, uh, like in springtime and summer over... Uh, the tops of large volcanoes and hanging around around the equator. 
Um, at other times, you get just these global dust events where there's so much dust lofted in the atmosphere from storms that we can't even see the surface from orbit. So it's a really dynamic place. And I think a lot of people don't know that Mars has weather or even an atmosphere <laughs> to speak of. So that would kind of be my answer to the question you asked Fred is what's the most interesting thing about Mars? I think it's the fact that it has so much active weather. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I mean, yeah, people, I think people just have no idea of that. So I think that's definitely really interesting. All right. So that's great introduction for all three of you. And from here on out, I just want to have kind of an open discussion and, and let's start with the discussion about, you know, what the whole, uh, idea from Elon Musk of, of creating this colony on Mars. And, and I'll just start with framing it this way. Is he crazy? Is there, is there something legitimate here or is, or is he, you know, completely out of his mind? Don't I feel like this, should, I was just gonna say, I feel like this should go to the, the real scientists first. Cause like, I, I, I history, I don't hard science. So any one of the hard sciences want to jump in first? <laughs> I'm really curious to hear what you think too. <laughs> wow. Um, it's, it's a, it's why well, I feel like you're like, here, walk onto this plank. Over this bridge. Um, I, 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 there's, there's two aspects to it. I think, I mean, one is having a goal. So, having the, this big goal where you're going to have colonies and lots of people, great goal, um, something to aim towards. Um, however, you know, hashtag it's complicated. Uh, <laughs> you have to overcome a lot of the problems with sending uh, the bags mostly filled with water, the humans, to the planet. You have to, over, you have, to have, you know, just resources, water, yeah. um, energy, heat, um, and then you have to deal with things, the external things like radiation and lower gravity, and they're, they're not easy problems to solve, and the question is, how long can you stand them? So, uh, you know, this is where probably Amy can talk more, you know, like, we went to the moon, but they weren't on the moon for very long, and they came back, but even the, the short period of time that you're in moon or you're in space, or now we're doing these year-long um, uh, of humans in the ISS and they come back down and, and they have physical problems. Uh, and they're protected, you know, somewhat protected by the Earth's radiation shield um, in, in, in terms of magnetic field that, you know, they're not exposed to all the radiation that would get going to Mars or even staying on Mars. So there are lots of problems to solve. It's, it's not like, oh, we decided to go and then it's all great. Um, <laughs> technology will solve everything. Well, technology can solve some things, but, you know, there, there are limits. And, and, you know, one of the limits is just time. How long will it take to get there? And the other function of time is money. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, faster, cheaper, better, pick two. Um, <laughs> so either you, you, can, you can do it, but it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time. Or you can spend a lot of time, but, you know and a little money but it's going to take forever you know it might not be safe so it, you have to measure the the risk posture of how you want to go there um, you know are you willing to just go there and live for a month <laughs> or do you want that to be six months do you want it to be a year do you want it to be six years or six decades all that changes the the bit availability to actually put a person there and either have and do you want them to come back you know that raises a whole nother issue getting down is one thing getting back up is another so mm -hmm. Um, from the surface, so there's lots of lots of technical challenges. It's it's not just hey, we have a dream. Let's you know it's it's possible, <laughs> uh, sure, but 
there's lots and lots of details. I think the other thing that people don't think about that you sort of alluded to, Fred, is that um, not only is there a lot of radiation to deal with in going to Mars, there's a lot of radiation on Mars. So it's not just like if we build a super fast rocket and like blast through the Van Allen belts, which they did do going to the moon. It was not a, a proof that they didn't go to the moon. Um, blast through the Van <laughs> Allen belts, go really fast to Mars through like magic rockets. I don't know how um, we're supposed to shrink the time to Mars when you're dealing with a payload of 100 people and all of their stuff. Um, but then to live on Mars with no radiation shielding, I mean, are the first babies born on Mars going to be like <laughs> little cancer-ridden mutants? Like, what What are we doing to the humans that are going to be living in this situation? Not to mention, like, and I don't know because I'm not a botanist, but, like, could we even grow crops in Mars's salty, you know, not fertile soil with constant radiation bombardment? I mean, this is... The technological challenges don't end with, like, just building a bigger rocket. They continue on with, like, the first very long time of being on Mars. And during Elon Musk's presentation of this uh, at, um, oh gosh, IAC, sorry, I wanted to say the, the acronym <laughs> for another conference, <laughs> uh, he was specifically asked about the radiation issues, and he very conveniently sort of sidestepped them, both as far as transit and humans surviving on the surface once they get there. It's it wouldn't be that difficult for us right now to just put some people in a capsule and send them to Mars, provided you either didn't want to bring them back or you didn't want them to stay there for very long. But actually having people live on the surface for an extended period of time and or have the ability for them to come back, those are things that we don't have right now. And we've never actually landed anything on Mars that is nearly the size of the equipment that Elon Musk is talking about wanting to land, both the cargo uh, ships that he wants to send before humans get there not to mention the size of the actual ship if you're going to be transporting 100 to 200 people at a time uh, and the materials that they want to make that out of. You know, he's talking about using carbon composites so that everything will be really light and fast, but we've never made anything that big out of carbon composites before. So the, the technology for that is not quite there yet. Yeah, I, I mean, and this somewhat fits with, with what Musk has done in the past, which is kind of you know, lay out some basic ideas and, and and then hope that people fill in the the gaps. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it seems to me there's a question, at least in my mind, as to, you know, how much of this is, is kind of a, an aspirational goal, sort of in the, in the format of, of like, you know, the original um, President Bush proclamation of going to Mars, uh, and how much of it is is actually a, a legitimate plan, um, you know. And in previous projects, like you know, Musk also has this whole thing with um, with the Hyperloop, which is this sort of super fast train, you know, through a tube, kind of a pneumatic sort of setup. Um, you know, in that case, like he actually had people who kind of took his. I guess back of the napkin drawings and have been trying to turn it into something. And that's turned into a couple of real efforts um, th though. There are still questions on that, but, but like, you know, building a train in a tube between two cities is very, very different than sending a million people to Mars. Um, and, and so it seems like a, a much, much bigger challenge. And, and I guess, 
you know, some of some of his idea in, in putting it together was like, well, if I inspire people to start thinking about it and talking about it, then hopefully, you know, out of that will come, you know, the, the monetary support that is definitely needed and then all the sort of research and, and tests and stuff. But it it strikes me as someone who has no knowledge of this at all that, you know, his estimates for how long it would take. I mean, I think he was saying if, you know, if we put our mind to it, we could send the first ship there by 2024 um and then it would take you know another sort of 40 to 100 years to actually build a colony seem very 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 optimistic um and, and from what you guys are saying i think that's that's pretty accurate <laughs> uh at least that that my estimation was um but you know if uh, you know and, and that's specific to 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 musk's plans do you think that there are other you know, other ideas for getting people to Mars that are more reasonable than maybe not necessarily creating this whole colony. I mean, I think all of you sort of mentioned this idea of, you know, it's possible to get someone to put someone in a capsule, but it probably couldn't last very long. Um, I think obviously if we're sending someone to Mars, we would have to have some sort of plan to get them to come back. I'm not sure how many people would be willing to, to just go. I mean, um, but are there, you know, are there more reasonable plans, you think, for a smaller sort of expedition to Mars? The only ones that jump to mind that I've seen um, would be, I think it's still called Inspiration Mars, which is just, I don't know if anyone wants to jump in on this. I think it's just a stupid idea. <laughs> is <laughs> Sorry, this... anybody who loves it. This is the one that's like the Apollo 8 of Mars, but not even going into orbit, just like doing a like slingshot around Mars for the sake of going to Mars. Okay. Um, I can't remember who was going to do it. Um, this was like, this is like four years ago. This idea first came out. I just I remember I was I was living in Phoenix at the time, and the press conference I watched online. They had pieces of paper with their names on it, and I was like, "Wow, you don't even have the budget to like get a <laughs> nameplate. How are you going to go to Mars?" Um, that one I think is the only other plan um, that I've heard of that people are actually trying to do, which I just think is like, if you're going to go all the way to Mars, like at least go into orbit. Like that's, that's so, less so this useful than Apollo 8 was. And Apollo 8 was like a proof of technology for something long-term, not just for the sake of inspiring people for <laughs> humans. Like we need, we need to do this for science, not for like happy fun times. <laughs> and, and that's and, not even, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so, so th this project was literally just to try and send people, slingshot them around yeah. Mars and back, back to earth yeah so, this was i think the idea okay. it wasn't even it was like you know the side benefit is going to be that we'll understand a little bit more about the radiation environment involved in going to mars and how people deal with long-term um space flight and stuff but ultimately like the goal was just to inspire people to do things and i was <laughs> like that is the worst reason to go into space um and of course i'm not even going to touch mars one which is the right. reality tv show one-way <laughs> mission human colony that i think will actually this is funny this is how I met Fred um, because I was tweeting about Mars One like four years ago and I just couldn't I was we were trying to decide over Twitter um, at what point would a one-way mission reality show turn into like Survivor Mars where it's like <laughs> Like, like Brad and Sarah are in love, but will Sarah's hunger trump her love? And will she cannibalize Brad? Like, I, it's just such a mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't even bring that up. It's, 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 it does seem like 
you know, something of a, a kind of publicity scam. <laughs> um, scam would it, be a good word for it it. 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 it would be the worst version of Survivor ever. It would be, <laughs> how long before they die? Hmm, you know, <laughs> you're just watching people seconds, die. Minutes or hours, <laughs> choose oh, one. Gosh. You know, it's it. Yeah, no, horribly, horribly unrealized idea. Um, there's, I think there's been talk even in the, um, the NASA community to kind of do stage access to Mars, which is um, do a flyby, not just for grins and inspiration, but um, to understand architecture and the and there is thought about that if you you know you fly people through this whole the full travel time to Mars and then from Mars uh, that you get um, some understanding of the technology required to be in space for a long time. You would at least have someone fly by Mars like they did the moon uh, and it would certainly be an accomplishment. Uh, I, I do tend to agree with Amy personally, uh, not speaking for my employer, <laughs> but uh, uh, and that goes for everything I say here for the most part, um, that, you know, if you're going to go to Mars, Go into orbit, you know, make the attempt, land. Um, but but landing is, you know, it's 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 probably the easiest thing to do is probably to do just that. Fly to Mars, you know, do a slingshot by and come back. Um, mm -hmm. Landing is a whole nother story. Um, Mars is incredibly difficult to land on for the two reasons um, of <laughs> because it has an atmosphere and because mm -hmm. it doesn't have an atmosphere. Um, because there's enough atmosphere to burn you up, but there's not always quite enough atmosphere to make you land, to slow you down enough. So you have to do these weird hybrid things. E either you have to have like have a lot of retro repulsion, um, kind of like like Viking did, which was all powered landing, or you have to do these weird mixes of you know air uh, uh, a parachute and then an airbag, or a parachute or in rockets, and then when you increase the mass, then all those go out the window. And you have to do something like retro repulsion, which is what um, SpaceX is aiming for, and and you know, and, and NASA has other things like low density sonic decelerators, L LDSD, um, that they're looking to develop to land uh, larger masses on the surface. So yeah, so I mean, there's there's those. What was the other? Um, there's also um, uh, different. I mean, ideas out there of how you do it. There's um, I don't know the exact link to it. Something like something called the JPL architecture, where it's landing about ten tons or twenty-five tons on the surface, um, but it's all power descent. Um, but you know, it's it's just a design. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an architecture design. It's not reality. There's no you know nothing is worked out. It would still be you know you're talking decades in the future if you even started now. But yeah, I, I think you know there's kind of the two parts. Like the moon is. Um, you know, we did these sorties where you, you went to a place, you visited, and you came back, and you didn't plan to, st to stay. Um, that's one way of visiting Mars. So we kind of go to a bunch of different places on Mars, and we see, you know, we get um, the proverbial, uh, you know, astronauts on the ground, and you can t sample rocks and say, yes, we went there, and we can do it a few times. Uh, but there's more of this goal towards this idea of, you know, permanent outpost or base, you know, something like Antarctica, where you kind of have this permanent presence and uh, presence and people rotate through, um, mm -hmm. but even that's less than colonization because, you know, places like Antarctica are dependent on supplies constantly going to the planet, 
and and you know that's another viable way but you know, of course you know that's that's time and money and of course you have to think about like well what if the cargo ship doesn't make it what do you do do you have enough supplies and so on and so forth right um, and you know colonization is that ultimate break where it's like you're you become self-supporting at, at least at some point in time um but you know again lots of things to solve yeah and and like going back to the sort of historical aspect of it right i mean you know there used to be all this talk of you know basically that same debate i think about the moon right where you know the idea of like setting up a, an outpost um you know that would be you know sort of permanently manned similar to kind of an antarctica thing and of course that never happened so amy i don't know if you have any thoughts on you know comparing kind of the the mars question to you know to the way that the people discussed the moon in a, in a similar manner a few decades ago i think i think it's the it's the comparison everyone wants to make but i think <laughs> it's such a bad one because like you can see the moon so it's closer uh-huh. And you can't see Mars, therefore it's harder and a lot further away and not, it's like, it's not the same scale. And like the other thing that people sort of forget when you're talking about the moon landing and trying to draw analogy with the Mars mission is that like, we went to the moon as part of the Cold War. Like we were mm-hmm. at war with a nation and war has this amazing ability to do things like drive innovation and technological, uh, you know, developments. Um NASA had an unprecedented amount of money in the 1960s. Like four, over, slightly over 4% of the GDP in 1966 was the peak of Apollo funding. Like that's just like, think about how much money that is. Right. <laughs> that's so much money. NASA currently has like, what, 0.1%? Yeah. Um, we would need like, like a completely different situation in the entire world to have a Mars program on the scale of Apollo, I think. Yeah. And, and, but I mean, and even, you know, part of the point that I was making with, with the, the moon stuff is that everyone was talking about the idea of, you know, sort of establishing a permanent moon base and, and that never even happened. So the idea because of they like, ran out of money, right? So the idea of then jumping to, you know, doing, you know, even a, a permanent, you know, Mars base, let alone, you know, full colonization seems like a big, big jump to me. I think it's, I think it's like trying to say, trying to say it's the natural progression after going to the moon or trying to make that analogy that like we've done this therefore this is the next step it's like no this is the next step if you don't really i mean back me up here real science people but like this is the <laughs> this is the next step if you don't really understand how hard technology is to develop on this kind of scale like i just i i i mean my personal opinion and i have no employer but this reflects my own opinion not anybody that i am affiliated <laughs> with um uh, i don't i just don't really see why we even need to go to mars right now we just don't there's so many unknowns about it there's so many things that that we just can't afford to do properly i mean it's it's on the one hand it's a goal that gives people kind of purpose and unites people and people get excited about it um and we you know it goes back to like the whole no bucks uh no buck rogers no bucks uh thing <laughs> from the right stuff that like you need astronauts for people to get excited and want to fund the space program but at the same time like why like what like why do we need to go to mars right now i can agree with that it's probably not necessarily the right time to say we're going to colonize Mars right now just because of the technology and the health issues and all of that. But from a science standpoint, especially as a geologist, I, I'm really for human exploration of Mars just for the boots on the ground geology because it's so difficult to do things with rovers. And even though the rovers we have are amazing, you know, thank you, Fred and everybody at JPL for that. But it, the stuff that it's taken 
say, opportunity 13 years to do, a geologist could probably have done in a week of just walking around on the surface. And if we could send humans, I feel like within days of astronauts walking around on the planet, we will find something that will completely revolutionize our view of the planet just by having someone physically there and being able to put their observations into context and have that human intuition just look around and say, oh, I can put all these pieces together now. I know what's going on here. But there's always sort of the cost-benefit analysis. You know, it's way more expensive to send humans. It's not safe. Could we just send 10 more rovers to do this and this and this and still learn the same types of things? I think regardless of how many rovers you sent to Mars, it would still never replace a human. So I'm I'm very biased in that I really want to send some geologists over there. <laughs> are you, are I, you volunteering sorry, go to go? <laughs> As I said, Tanya, are you volunteering to be a, a geologist to go to Mars? I'm a little too claustrophobic. Maybe if Elon Musk does get that 30-day transit time he's talking about, and I could take a whole bunch of sedatives, then, then we'll talk. Uh, great. Fred, what were you about to say? Oh, I was just going to say, um, it, it's interesting to talk about, uh, you know, what, one of the things I talked about is, let's go back to the moon so we can test going to Mars. And I kind of agree with Amy, like, two completely different things. The moon is not Mars. Uh, it, it's, it's different from an environment. It's different from, you know, even on the ground, it's different. It's, it's a whole different type of technology to go to Mars versus the moon. But the other thing is that, um, like Amy said, you can see the moon from the earth. You know what that means you can do? You can run robots from the earth all you want on the moon all day long. Telerobotics tele would be awesome on the moon because um, we can have a direct link not so much on Mars. So when everyone's saying like, send, you know, send humans to the moon and send robots to Mars, I say, no, the opposite. You send robots <laughs> to the moon, you send humans to Mars simply because of this time delay problem. You know, you, you can't, you can't joystick the rover on the, on Mars, you can on the moon. So, uh, besides everything that, uh, uh Dr. Harrison said, Tanya, um, that, you know, a, a human can do a lot, um, on the surface you know, you know, could, you know, do, you know, curiosity or opportunities mission, uh, in a few days, um, just because they have that ability to work in the surface. However, there is also the problem that, you know, even though you're on the surface, um, you do a lot of, um, uh, we'll call it housekeeping as astronauts. And, uh, at the two years ago, there was a, um, humans to Mars conference and one of the astronauts spoke, and said, you know, you, you have about, I can't remember, it was really small. It was like two or four hours or six hours of science you can do a day. And that's it. Because you've got to spend time, you know, making sure your habitat isn't exploding. And making, you know, and putting on a suit and going to your site and then collecting samples and then getting back and keeping safe. So even though it is good to send humans to Mars... It's not like it's unfettered, like science 24-7 a day, you know, there's, you know, it's science six hours a day because you're spending the other hours not dying. So, <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it's, it's complicated either way. But I do kind of agree that, you know, humans can do a lot more than a rover on the surface. So 
I've had this conversation with a lot of people, and I'm curious to what you geologists would think. Um, that because part of the problem with landing on Mars is the fact that like landing something heavy enough, or well, I mean, with the mass of you know humans and life support and all that stuff for any significant length of time, that's really hard to do. Um, but humans in orbit around Mars could control rovers with no light time delay, therefore get super fast, you know, relatively super fast science done without having the challenge of landing on Mars. And I've always thought that was an interesting kind of midway, like send send a, an orbiter and then drop a bunch of small rovers and have them like, you know, with GoPros on them that you can just control with VR headsets from orbit. I always thought that was an interesting idea for a, like a mid-range before we can really get there. What do you guys think? I think it's a possibility, but even if you're still teleoperating that robot from really close, it's still really difficult to make interpretations looking through the camera of the rover compared to putting your boots on the ground and actually standing there and looking at the outcrops yourself. So I almost feel like, kind of like you said earlier, if we're going to go at all the effort to send humans to Mars you might as well land them because like you're that close and you're you're in orbit but you're you're still not necessarily doing much different from operating a rover from JPL here on earth you're just doing it faster i don't know if fred would hmm. agree with that uh yeah i i i mostly agree with that you know teleoperating um could work um it does require you know, there's some orbital mechanics problems or you'd have to have extra orbiters to talk because you, you know, if you do your classical portal orbit, you're only over any part of the Mars for only a, a few hours at a time. Um, conceivably, you could be in some kind of area stationary orbit where you're always looking at this one spot on the ground so you can, you know, joystick the rover all over the place. But yeah, I agree. I mean, unless you have some, you know, some robot can do all the things that humans can do, you know, bend down, look from the side, being able to, you know, be very dexterous to turn rocks over or, uh, you know, swing a rock hammer, <laughs> uh, you know, that it, that, that it would become a, uh, a, a virtual reality experience where it would be like you were actually there, um, you know, real time. Uh, I, 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 maybe it can be done, but I kind of, yeah, might as well just stick them on the ground, you know. I, I, sometimes it becomes a trade, I think, in terms of cost. In terms of capabilities, um, you know, if the rover breaks, what do you do? You know, do you have another re re repair robot to do it, to fix the robot? All these things. And we've done experimental missions here on the Earth where we send rovers to places that we know of. Um, the group I used to be with in Canada just finished up a, an analog mission in Utah where we sent a rover uh, and tried to put together the geologic history of the area that it was in only based on the data we got from the rover. We weren't allowed to look at anything else. And then they sent the team down there to actually look at it in person. And the difference between those two things is extraordinary, even for a place on Earth where you can sort of infer the context. You know, Even if you knew that site was in southwestern Utah, you can say, okay, well, as a geologist, a lot of people should know the basic history of what happened in that area of the, the U.S., um, but it was still very difficult to actually piece together everything compared to what it looked like on the ground standing there looking at the rocks. You're like, oh, yeah, this is not exactly what I thought it was just from looking at the pictures. Huh. That's actually really fascinating just to to see that comparison because I think it's it's almost hard to comprehend, you know, um, 
you know, you think you have this picture, you think you have this information, and, and that's a really interesting way of putting in perspective that, you know, we might not not really know. And that actually sort of, I think, brings me to, to the final question I wanted to, to have you guys weigh in on, which is, um, you know, let's, let's take a little bit more of a, a realistic short-term view, I think, and even long-term view of, you know, what other kinds of projects related to Mars should we be focusing on right now if we're not talking about, you know, building a huge colony there? Uh, what kinds of things do you think are, are most important in, in the, you know, in the meantime? Again, I feel like this is one the scientists should jump in on first because I just write about it. <laughs> or maybe I'll jump in. Okay, well, I, I mean, okay, at the risk of, you know, anchoring the scientists. Sorry, guys. I feel like there are other places we should maybe be spending some of our energy on right now. Like, we've been on Mars for a really long time. I'm really keen to go to Venus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm the I'm the unpopular opinion that I'm just like, I don't even know what to do with Mars anymore. I'm sort of like, I want something new. I want something different. I want a different planet. Sorry. <laughs> no, I actually Amy? really agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sick of Mars. <laughs> Amy, Tanya, unfriended. Sorry. <laughs> I, I love Mars. It keeps me employed. It's really great. But I feel like... We almost have data overload for Mars right now. There's so much data that we have from, you know, curiosity, from opportunity, from the high-rise camera that people haven't even looked at yet. And I, I feel like if we just sort of shut off the tap for a little bit and have people look at the data that we already have, there's still a lot of discoveries waiting to be made in there. But, um, you know, if NASA's goal is to look for life, especially if we want to try to find life in the universe today... I don't think Mars is the place to find it, but we're finding all of these fantastic oceans in the outer solar system. So I, I feel like we should really be spending more resources out there if the goal is life. But it, Mars is very interesting for the possibilities of ancient life and just from a geologic standpoint, kind of studying it to learn more about our own planet. Um, so I, I don't think we should stop going to Mars, but I do think that other planets and moons in the solar system are sort of being neglected at the expense of studying Mars even more. Okay, so I'll recant a little bit, just a little <laughs> bit. Um, I, I, I agree. I, I I agree with all that that we're we're missing. Um, you know, it, it's Mars is you know one eighth of the planets in our solar system. Let's not go into the whole Pluto thing, but uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, we we are missing, you know. We haven't done anything on Venus. That's the equivalent of um, Mars in terms of high resolution data sets. Um, same thing with Europa. Oh, that's hopefully turning around. Um, Titan's incredibly interesting. Uh, there's a lot of other planets out there to study. Now, see the the problem is always with with this. Like, do we shut off the tap for Mars so that it turns on in other places? That's to me that's a policy problem, not a research problem it's you know as amy had said earlier the nasa budget is a um a small fraction of the um of the whole budget uh, of uh for the u.s in general um so that you know if we had you know i can't remember what it's like if we got an extra dollar from everyone we'd be doing all these things <laughs> at once but unfortunately because you know uh funding is limited, you can only do certain things. And so the community has been focused on Mars and, you know, of course it returned a lot of good science, um, but it has come at the expense of ignoring other places like Europa and Venus. And um, yeah, it's, it's kind of sad. Um, 
So yeah, no, I, I agree. We, we, we need to focus more places. But if, if we were just talking about Mars, uh, I would just say uh, more um, data from the ground. We're really missing the um, orbital um, verification process, all, all types of remote sensing. Anything you take from orbit, take pictures on the ground, no matter how good the resolution is, you figure out whether what you're seeing is true or not by going to the ground. So maybe a more diverse um, sampling campaign in terms of getting, uh, getting robots on the ground somewhere, or humans for that matter. Interesting. And, and um, because I, I just don't know, you know, what are there, um, are there sort of ongoing projects to look at those other places? I mean, Venus obviously is, is close nearby. I think it's even a little closer than Mars technically. Um, Europa is obviously a lot further out. Um, and, and the other sort of moons that are interesting also kind of far out. Are there, is there anyone who's actually thinking about sending stuff to those things in, in any near term future? Oh yeah, well, they're, um, we're uh, we're working on the Europa Clipper, or at least I think that was the last incarnation of the name. Uh, actually, it's coming in two parts. There'll be an orbiter which goes to Europa, and there's also talk of a Europa lander. Hmm. Uh, both uh, very exciting projects. Uh, another one that's um, still hasn't been selected yet, but is coming along is Veritas, which is a would be a mission to Venus, but that's still very much in the proposal stage. Um, not in the um, has tax dollars attached to it stage, <laughs> right? So um, yeah, so there. So we are starting to go to the other planets, but it's been a long time. I mean, you know, Magellan back in the nineties, uh, you know, was the last time we sent a, a mission to Venus. Other and there was a Venus Express mission, but I think it was mostly atmospherics. Didn't really do anything um, getting through the clouds. Not saying that anything wrong with weather. Hi, Tanya. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but there was no kind of replication of the, you know, higher resolution on the surface of Venus or, or, or for Europe, for that matter. I mean, the, for me, the big thing about Mars is um, where it got, you know, Viking was great and we got a certain level of data, kind of like we have on Venus, kind of like we have on Europa. And then nothing happened. Um, not much happened. And then uh, we got the Mars Global Surveyor, and now all of a sudden we had meter scale resolution. All of a sudden it was a whole new Mars, and we saw things we couldn't have even imagined. And um, and that was a big um, breaking point in terms of the beginning of you know kind of reinvigoration of Mars exploration, at least in my opinion. And that you know Venus needs that, and Europa needs that. If they had the similar meter scale resolution uh, imagery on the surface we'd be doing all sorts of new science there, and I think we'd be as inspired as we are on Mars as we would be at, at Europa and um, Venus. Definitely. If you think about, from the Mars perspective, what we thought of Mars between Viking and then what we learned from Mars Global Surveyor, it's so different. So to, th to think that we could have that revolution between Magellan and whatever the super high resolution you know, hopefully next Venus mission is, or getting that high resolution data for Europa. I think it's going to completely change anywhere that we go to in the solar system to get that kind of data, because the difference between 200 meters per pixel and one meter per pixel is just astounding in terms of what you can tell about the geology of a place. Interesting. So I, I guess I, I do still have one follow-up question on this, which is, um, you know, obviously some of the, the stuff around Mars and kind of, you know, what we started off this podcast on was, was focused on, you know, Elon Musk's talking about it and, 
you know, you know, a lot of what he's been doing is is sort of trying to revolutionize kind of the private spaceflight stuff. Do we think that that any of this kind of stuff in terms of exploring, you know, the various moons or Venus or things like that, if there's any room for for private efforts to be involved in that, or is it still going to have to just be, you know, big government funding? I think if there's some sort of partnership with the government, just because it takes a lot of money to be able to launch stuff, especially to the outer solar system, and you need some kind of incentive, a lot of commercial companies aren't going to want to send, you know, uh, a flagship level mission to Neptune just for the sake of going out there and taking data. They're going to want some profit off of that at the back end. So if that's not coming from NASA, how are they going to make money off of that? Maybe they can sell the data somehow. I don't know. This is exactly the kind of thing that is my job, trying to figure out how to commercialize space. <laughs> uh, it's new since I'm a geologist, so I'm just learning about all of this. And it's really easy to do that for the Earth because there's all sorts of companies here that want to buy Earth remote sensing data. But selling that for another planet is a little harder. I would love to see it, though, because, you know, faster timelines, cheaper missions. I feel like we could explore a lot more places without the limitations that we have from, you know, with NASA, we can only send a couple of missions every few years. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's, it, it would just be interesting just because, um, you know, if there w were a way to, to make it, you know, make sense for, for private companies to get involved also. Um, and I agree. I mean, obviously I think it would have to be some sort of private public partnership, um, especially early on, you know, down the road, you could definitely see some, some other opportunities coming from that, but it's definitely a really interesting space. And, um, uh, I could, as a complete amateur on this stuff, I could talk to you guys all day. Uh, but, but I think we've, we've really kind of run out of time on, on this podcast. I'm, I'm really happy that, that this worked out and that we got all three of you on the podcast. Um, and you know, each with, with your areas of expertise and, and knowledge, um, in an area that, that I know very little about, but, but I'm really fascinated by and, and learned a lot, um, just in the last 45 minutes or so. So, um, Thank you guys so much for for joining us. Um, thanks to everyone who's who's listening, uh, and uh, and we'll be back next week. But um, thanks again, uh, Amy, Fred, and Tanya for for joining us, and and we'll put links to all of your stuff uh, in the post when we put this up. Thank, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Grab a shovel and dig up the tack. Grab.